Welcome into the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray, a locally produced program devoted to bringing you a fresh perspective on housing, diving into the issues that matter most. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray is presented by Mortgage Investors Group. And now, Kevin Ray. Welcome into the Housing Hour. This is Kevin Ray. I'm your host. I'm here with Mark Griffith, our executive uh, producer and co-host and Pinterest star. And I am very excited to be here today. Uh, this show is presented by Mortgage Investors Group. We have offices all the way from the Tri-Cities to Memphis, everywhere in between. We'd love for you to go to MIGonline.com and check us out. Uh, we also want to direct you to thehousinghour.com. You can find uh, all of our past shows, our current shows, any series that we have completed over the last eight years. We'd love for you to, to jump in there and um, dig in. We have a treasure trove of information. It's the mothership of everything we do. Um, and we're on the Facebook Facebook.com slash the housing hour. Love free to go there and on as well, uh, Twitter at the housing hour. So today we are talking a little history and a little history means uh, something that is so important to America with us in studio. We have Charles Winfrey. Thank you so much, Charles, for joining us today. My pleasure. We made it difficult for you because there were some detours out there, (laughs) but just like uh, anything in life, if there's a detour, you still make it and you made it and we appreciate it very much no problem um, let me ask you this first and foremost the the key thing here that, that we want to talk about is a, a museum that has been developed because we want to talk about the history of the coal mining industry mm-hmm. and coal creek miners museum is the name of the museum that why don't i do this i'll let you tell us tell me how you're involved with it and just give me a little bit of a thirty thousand foot view of what it is you're doing well, I, my involvement goes back to the 1980s. I, mm-hmm. um, I was in the newspaper business for 30-some-odd years mm-hmm. out in Anderson and Campbell County. I was mm-hmm. editor of various papers, including the La Follette Press, which is still going strong in La Follette. And uh, I'd always taken a, an interest in, in local history, so mm-hmm. I'd done a lot of research and reading about history from in, in the region, and especially the Coal Creek War, mm. which was a uh, event that happened in the 1890s in, in Lake City, which was then called Coal Creek, uh, because I had family ties to it. Mm. My great-grandfather was a, a miner out there at the mm-hmm. time. And uh, so I wrote uh, during the homecoming 86 thing that we had in 1986 when Lamar Alexander was governor. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of communities were writing local histories. I did the local history of Lake City. Mm. Uh, also did some newspaper series about it. And at that time, the town decided they wanted to put a museum together to celebrate the history of the area. And uh, I ended up being on the board. And I've been on the mi- on the board of the Miners Museum ever since. Mm. So uh, I'm sort of the unofficial historian of mm. Lake City area right now. Is it Rocky Top? Because I don't know if everybody's jumped on board. It's, it, you know, it changed its name to Rocky Top. I yeah. still call it Lake City. Right. It, most of the most fascinating history of the place occurred when it was known as Coal Creek. So, oh, there, hey, so even going back, I sent step. out my I sent out my Christmas cards a couple of years ago addressed to Coal Creek, Lake City, Rocky Top, or whatever, <laughs> and the zip code, and they all got delivered. <laughs> yeah, so, I love it. That's awesome. Well, so because that's actually an interesting piece of history. I did not realize that it was called something even before Lake City. Yeah. Um, there is no lake in Lake City, to my knowledge. Um, there is Rocky Top, because people are Tennessee fans. So that's an interesting bit of history right there. You're sort of the unofficial historian, is what you said. Um, and this particular museum, um, 
talk to me a little bit about how it came to be. And I know that I think they bought a Bank of America building. They've really got a great yeah. location. Talk to me a little bit about how it was formed and, and sort of that reasoning behind it. Well, you know, it started, like I say, during the homecoming 86 period. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, originally we had a little museum that we decided we were going to celebrate the history of the Coal Creek Lake City area. Mm -hmm. And uh, the city had a building that they donated to us for it. It was the old Coal Creek Opera House. Wow. It had been uh, it had been remodeled into a department store years earlier, and it was, it was vacant. And so we moved into that building, and... Um, you know, people came in, brought in donations, brought in old photographs, miners tools, just about all kinds of things like that. And uh, we put together a, 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 a several rooms of displays. Later on, the town decided to tear the building down and build a new city hall there. So they moved us in, uh, into a corner of the community center, but it wasn't enough space for the museum to actually make any progress. And just a few years ago, a group of us got together with the uh, – including the uh, chairwoman of the Anderson County Tourism Department and, and the, the county commissioner and several other people said, we need to get this thing going again. Mm. And the county had an opportunity to purchase the old former uh, Bank, of, uh, Bank of Oak Ridge building there in, mm. in uh, Lake City that had been vacant for several years. And uh, they uh, we were able to get the county to buy it and then donate it to the town of Lake City. And later on, they donated it to a nonprofit organization that mm -hmm. would be a little bit easy for us to raise funds. That and, was smart. Yeah. So, so we've got a board of directors and uh, and uh, a lot of members, a lot of donors. We opened up, um, I guess, it's three years ago that we had our grand opening. I think we've had somewhere in the neighborhood of around eight thousand visitors so far from all fifty states, from about a dozen foreign countries. People just come in from you know surprisingly from long way away sometimes now there's a lot of things that happened within that area um and we're going to talk about those events that occurred mm -hmm. um as far as the explosions and, and, yeah. and the effect that it had on on that area and all of that um and we only have a few minutes left in this segment but i, I do want to tackle just because for those that may not understand or know you know i think coal mining has received kind of a bad name in a lot of respects because they only see the bad things that have come out of the news and Congress and the state representatives and everybody has an opinion. And, you know, a lot of it's not scientific. It's just opinion and all of those things. But um, coal mining was one of the main reasons that we sit here today and are able to have the economy we have and have the the industrial revolution that we had. Mm -hmm. And uh, talk a little bit about coal mining in general. Well, you know, coal mining, like, you know, they say that everything has its place in history and its place in time. And that's very true of coal mining. Uh, coal mining today has a black eye for good reasons. Mm -hmm. It's an environmental problem. Strip mining, you know, denuded our mountains, our Cumberland Mountains. The uh, uh, pollution from coal-fired steam plants has, has uh, you know, caused air pollution problems. Flash. Um, you saw what happened down in Kingston uh -huh. a few years ago, how, what to do with all that stuff. So coal mining has gotten a black, uh, a black eye from environmentalists. It also, there's been a, a history of disasters and deaths, and it's a dangerous profession. It always has been, even, even, in, even in modern times. But, you know, its time was the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century. Without coal, we wouldn't be where we're at today. Right. It fired it, 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 it fueled the steam 
engines that ran the riverboats and the railroads, and you know, and, and, and without the without coal, there would have been no steam locomotives transporting people across the country. Uh, without coal in the very dawn of uh, the electrical age, you wouldn't have had all the steam plants producing, you know. There's not enough rivers in this country to dam up to produce all the electricity mm-hmm. we need by hydroelectric power. Right. And so coal was responsible, greatly responsible for all the electrical uh, uh, progress that was made throughout the early part of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Without it, we wouldn't be where we're at today. Yeah. Uh, it, it provided you know, also, it provided people with good paying jobs. It provided people with jobs. They were uh, good paying compared to what the alternative was in right. these isolated rural areas, which was, you know, hunting and trapping and uh, living out off your farm with no income. So it, it was happy. Uh, the jobs were dangerous. Uh, there was a lot of controversy. That's the reason there was a, the rise of the UMWA and other unions uh, uh, was, you know, to a great degree necessary because of the, the way the miners were treated by the coal companies, which mm. is basically they were treated as indentured servants mm. to a large extent. Yeah. Uh, the old Tennessee Ernie Ford song, 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. Wow. Don't St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. Wow. There's never a truer song written. Yeah. Uh, coal miners in the 20th, 19th century and early 20th century, they they were paid. Uh, we, we've got we've got some pay slips down there at the museum that show miners uh, working 216 hours a month uh, and earning uh, uh, 17 cents an hour. Wow! Their take home pay was 37 dollars. They had to pay the company rent for their company-owned house that they lived in. They had to pay dues to the company to pay the company doctor. Every miner had to chip in a little bit for the company doctor. They had to pay. Uh, they had to buy their own house coal that they had mined themselves. That they'd burn in their home to keep it warm in the wintertime. They had to pay the company back for the coal. Wow! And if they wanted an advance on their wages, they could get it. They had to take it in scrip, mm. which was company money which was only redeemable at the company store where prices were about 20% higher than anywhere else. Oh, so that's what that song talks about. Yeah. Well, uh, coal miners. Before you, you, you've got a lot of great information. We're coming up on a break. So yeah. <laughs> let's pick it right back up because I, I love the history and the knowledge that you possess. And that song, I don't know if that's the song, but that sounds like a great one. <laughs> Here's the song. Is this the song that you're for? This is it. And a back that's strong, you load 16 tons. Wow. Good job. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I love it. Well, we're going to continue this conversation. This is incredible. We'll be right back. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. Welcome back into the Housing Hour. This is again Kevin Ray. Thank you for joining us. I'm very excited to have in studio with us a really interesting story and also um, interesting history. Uh, we have with us in studio from uh, the he calls himself the historian, but he is the unofficial historian, Charles Winfrey. Thank you for joining us again. It's been a, a pleasure just this first segment. Now we're rolling into segment number two. Sure. Uh, you were talking about the a lot of different things and a lot of aspects really of the history and then off air we were talking about being a good segue and you want to set up the segue of where we can go to this next part 
Well, yeah, but, but in 1893, there was a, a, a convict labor dispute mm-hmm. uh, in, in Tennessee, and Coal Creek was at the at the root of this uh, this problem and issue. Right. And um, that's where you know Anderson County was in the focus. Uh, I think Governor Buchanan at the time was in town. It was taken up to Coal Creek and and those types of areas. And probably our guest can shed the light on the significance of the convict lease program in Tennessee that was ended as a result of this uh, this mm-hmm. dispute. Maybe you could shed some light sure. on that. Well, to understand the convict lease system and the controversy, you have to go all the way back to the, the end of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. When the Civil War ended, all the southern states of the old Confederacy were broke. They didn't have, the last thing they had money to pay for was incarcerating criminals. So one by one, the southern states established what was known as the convict lease system, where they would lease out their convicts to private companies for labor. And instead of spending money incarcerating these criminals, they would actually make money off of them. Well, that was a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy there. If you're making money instead of spending money, you want more. And so as a result, they began to increase the population of prisons in the states by passing numerous new laws and uh, alex haley who's the author of roots yeah used to live in anderson county i had the uh he moved to anderson county back in the 80s i had the pleasure to go out and interview him for a local newspaper back when he was out there at the haley farm and we got to talking about the convict lease system he pointed out he said convict leasing uh, he said you got to understand its relation to jim crow Mm. so jim crow laws are always looked at in, by historians as racist laws that were passed in the South. So they were racist in their intent, I mean, in their, their effect, but their intent was was commercial. Mm. Their intent was economic. Mm-hmm. They were created they to increase the population in prisons that would then be leased out to private industry and make more profits to the states. Mm. And that's exactly what they did. And the South being what it was, most of those laws were aimed at the population of former slaves, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the uh, so as they became known as Jim Crow because so many of them were racially involved. But some of them didn't have anything to do with race; they had to do with taking simple crimes such as petty theft that had been thirty days in jail and increasing it to a one-year prison term because uh, the laws wouldn't allow the company. The companies didn't want to re- lease a uh, convict for thirty days. It took them that long to train them. They wanted a year out of them, so it had to be guaranteed a year before they release them. So they increased the penalty on a lot of minor crimes. Um, as a result, the population of convicts in the Tennessee system, after the Civil War, there were 200 criminals in the Tennessee prison system. By the 1890s, there were 1,500. The population of white prisoners in 1865 was 200. The population of white prisoners in 1892 was 200. Hmm. That give you an idea of what happened. Mm. It was in another word. It was an extension of the institution of slavery by another name, mm. and it wasn't just in Tennessee. It was all over the South. In Mississippi, they leased them out to cotton planters. In Tennessee, to the coal mines. In the Georgia and the Carolinas, they leased them out to the textile mills. But every southern state instituted the convict lease system, except Kentucky. They backed off. Of course, they weren't a Confederate state. You know, remember they they stayed in the Union, and they backed away from it. Um, convict lease really didn't get started though, and in, in in, uh, until coal was being mined commercially, there were no commercial coal mines in East Tennessee at all at the end of the Civil War. They knew coal was there, 
There'd been the, you know, Coal Creek, for instance. The town of Coal Creek got its name from a creek that ran out of the mountains and was named because of all the coals that they found in the sediments in the bottom of the creek. Uh, there was no commercial way to get it out. After the Civil War, a bunch of entrepreneurs built a railroad out from Knoxville to the nearest place where coal could be mined, and that happened to be where the creek ran a, and cut a, a gap through the ridge out of the Cumberland Mountains into the valley. And, you know, they built a little town there as the railroad reached there. You know, in 1868, there was nothing listed. By 1869, Bradstreet business listings had the town of Coal Creek. Had 12 businesses. Had a livery stable, a coal company, a bank, and uh, six uh, saloons. Mm. Give you an idea what the town wow. started out as. It's like a Wild West boob town. Wow. So they, they didn't mention any bordellos. I'm sure there was one of their, those two that they just sure. put on the record. Right. Uh, so there were nobody nobody around here knew how to mine coal, though. Mm. You know, the companies had another challenge, which is they couldn't find anybody to mine the coal. So they went up north, and they recruited Welsh miners out of Pennsylvania, Welsh immigrants that had experience. They went into up to New York and got them right off the boats, and they brought all these Welsh uh, experienced Welsh miners down to Coal Creek to uh, to uh, start the first mine into Knox Iron Company, which was the in here in Knoxville, the old foundry that smelled the town up so bad down there in the middle of town before they they uh, tore it down a number of years ago. That was in the Knoxville Iron Company. They needed coal to fuel their furnaces, and so they they opened the first mine, and um, they. Worked those Welsh miners uh, who came in, and then they provide them with a, a job, and uh, you know, they managed to find some places to live and everything. And they they went along just fine until 1876, and there was a little bit of a recession, and the company dropped wages, and the miners went on strike. And then the Knox Iron Company uh, turned to a coal company down in Tracy City, Tennessee, which had been using convicts since the get-go, since the early 1860s. And they subleased convicts from from uh, that company Sub-leased. and brought them in to replace the wow. miners. Laid all the Welsh miners off, replaced them with convicts. Well, that first time that that happened in 1876 didn't stir people up too bad because there were a lot of other mines around that were still working free labor, and the miners were able to go get other jobs, the ones that had struck the Knox Iron Company mine. And a lot of those Pennsylvania Welshmen, they just went back home where they came from. Mm-hmm. They said, well, if they don't appreciate us down here, we'll go home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for the next 15 years, convicts were allowed to work in that one mine and that one mine only. All the rest of the mines in the Cold Creek area were all uh, were all being operated by uh, free miners until 1891. In 1891, a little company up in Briceville uh, had a uh, had a strike. Its miners were having some labor problems with them, and so the company decided to uh, lay all the miners off and replace them with convicts. By then, a few things had changed. These miners were living in company houses. The company had built a, ca- a little company camp called Tennessee Camp up in the nap of the mountains, and they were le- renting these miners their homes. So the first thing that the company did when the convicts were brought in was Tell them your first job is to go over and evict those miners' families out of those houses and tear the houses down. You're going to use the lumber to build your stockade. Mm-hmm. And that was just going a little too far. It's one thing to lose their job to a convict. It was another thing to have convicts come in and evict your family you know, out of the, out of the house. So the miners all got together that evening in uh, mid-July and uh, 
uh, met and said, what are we going to do about it? Well, we're not going to take this line down. So they marched on the stockade. There were only about a dozen guards there, overpowered, you know, forced the guards to surrender. And they still considered these convicts to be dangerous criminals, so they, they didn't release them. Anymore. They marched the convicts under guard down the railroad track to the depot, load them on a train, gave the guards back their guns, and sent, sent them all to Knoxville, and sent the governor a telegram and said, don't send any more convicts out here. We don't want them. Wow. And the governor's response was to come at himself, mm. to address the miners and to admonish them to obey the law, you know, and to not not to uh, this is not 18, be, 1891, 1891. Okay. And he uh, and he admonished the miners and he brought to back his words up. He brought three companies of militia mm-hmm. along with it. Okay, so he was bringing a little strength with him. Yeah, a little strength. And uh, after he had his say, he left the convicts at the mines in the stockade with the militia guarding them. Mm-hmm. Well, the miners just said, well, we need reinforcements. Mm-hmm. So where a few hundred had gone up to march the first time, they put out a word all over East Tennessee, and even in Kentucky, where min- miners were a, br- a brotherhood, so they supported each other. Mm-hmm. You even had Kentucky miners coming down to Tennessee, and 1,500 of them armed themselves and marched in the stockade. And the militia commander looked around and said, we surrender. Right. You know, so the slave, a whole slave thing was done one more time, and it played the whole, the whole uh, uh, tragedy out again. Now, pause right there because we're getting ready to go to another break. Okay. We're going to pick right back up. So remember where you left? <laughs> I will. I will. Because really, this is setting up, because this is a, a huge moment in American history, especially in the Southeast, and it all centered in, in this very region. Yep. And there's not a lot of people that know this story. I knew of it, but I didn't know the details. Yeah. So we're going to continue talking here. We'll be right back after these messages. Blues and more blues, it's a cold black blues. Blues and more blues, it's a cold black blues. Got coal in my hair, got coal in my shoes. Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. Welcome back into the Housing Hour. This is Kevin Ray. Thank you for joining us again. We're here with Charles Winfrey. He's talking about Cold Creek. Now, uh, Rocky Top was Lake City. And it's very interesting. There's a lot of history that he is really diving into with, with all that has happened over the years. Um, it's amazing, really, because uh, coal mining has been and was a very big part of where we have come from and how we were able to accomplish so many things in the industrial age and really fueled uh, for uh, for many companies um, the ability to bring about the change that this re- this revolution of, of industry really brought. And um, with that, you know, over the years, we've had, we've learned a lot about coal mining. We've learned a lot about the ramifications uh, that it has on the workers, on the uh, environment and those types of things. Um, and those are all just a part of history. And we learn from those things. And um, we have in studio today, Charles, is he's told, talked a lot uh, about a specific event and that's what we're going to have him continue to talk about and that was the coal creek war 
And he just explained in the previous segment, if you're just catching up just in general, that there was this um, this lease program for convicts that really ultimately was the reason uh, that this war sort of became what it was because the governor essentially was, you know, subleasing and leasing these convicts to the coal mining industry in lieu of um, the normal coal miner that would be paid to support his family. And you did, you get, you have given us a great amount of information. The one thing I found most interesting was that they were told they had to go in and um, remove these families. We're talking about the convicts were given the authority to go in and evict these families that were living there. And what it wasn't that it wasn't bad enough that they were taking their jobs and all of that. And so just like what good people do when they see something that is an atrocity and, and they're standing up for themselves, they started to rise up. And that's, that's where we left off. We, the, the last thing I think you spoke of was talking about that they brought in the governor himself came with some supported troops. I guess it was the Tennessee national guard. Yeah. They called them a militia back then, but it was the Tennessee national guard. So he put a stop to that initial wave. But then they said, well, we just need to recruit more people. So some people who were, you know, like you said, there, it's a brotherhood, the miners, and they had some folks from Kentucky, you mentioned, and also around the Eastern Tennessee. And because it was such a violation of human rights, I'm sure that there was non mining mm-hmm. industry people that joined forces. So that's where I love for you to pick up there. You know, after that second uprising, when the, when the uh, militia was forced to surrender, mm-hmm. and once again, the convicts and the militia was escorted to the depot and sent back to Knoxville, <laughs> uh, the governor, was, he, he didn't know what to do. He, he was, he, they called his bluff. So he sent his commissioner of labor, George Ford, into Cold Creek to negotiate. Mm. And he told the miners, he said, if you'll allow me to send the convicts back because we have no place to put them. We don't have any prisons where we can put these convicts. You got to put them back in the stockade. If you allow them to come back out to Cold Creek, I'll call a special session in the legislature, and we'll deal with your grievances. Mm. And so the trusting miners said, okay, and they did it. And the convicts were brought back just with the prison guards, no militia, and they allowed them to come back in while the legislature went into session. The governor did as, as well as his word. He called a special session uh, in August, and uh, the uh, – the, uh, Legislature met uh, later on during the, during the fall, and they they're there about a week and a half. And the legislature back then wasn't much of an improvement over the one we've got nowadays. <laughs> they have all around for uh, for uh, the better part of two weeks, and in the end they adjourned and they only passed one new law, making it a felony to interfere with the convict lease system. Oh my goodness! So the miners felt that they had been totally betrayed, and as a result, uh, they. Uh, went to other more extreme measures. The next time they rose up, just a few days later, in o- late October. and Still uh, in 1891? Yeah, still in 1891. Okay. They rose up and they marched on the stockades. This time they were all disguised and masked on. They roughed up the prison guards a little bit. They didn't kill anybody, but they, you know, they treated them roughly. They brought the convicts out and they broke into the company commissaries, the stores that the company owned where they sold goods, you know, canned goods, food, clothing, broke into the company stores and let all the convicts dress themselves in civilian clothing, got them all clothed, and they're laying and turned around and said, boys, Kentucky is that away. Good luck. And let them all go. Hmm. And freed all the convicts. How many people both. was that? How many convicts was there? Well, it would have been roughly uh, 
only about 50 or 60 there at Bryceville, but another 200 at the Knox Iron Company mine because they went in there to feed them, too. And yeah. that uh, that burning of the stockades was October 28th, 1891. Yeah, yeah. So we're in the Halloween. month. We're just within a wow. week of this being uh, yeah, it was historic. A, it, was a, it was a Halloween break, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so they, they, uh, they, you know, that was the final straw. You know, the governor didn't know what to do then. Mm-hmm. So he... Uh, he backed off for a while, and things went back to normal. The mines uh, opened up. People were working. Um, it wasn't this during a re-election period for the governor. And no, not to the next year. N- next year. The but next did, year. But didn't this significantly impact? Because he lost oh, that election. When, when when Buck Buchanan ran for re-election, not only did he lose, he finished dead last in the primary. <laughs> oh, he wow. didn't even win the Democratic because primary. Right. Because of this. He, How he uh, handled it. He was, he was sadly defeated. And the irony is he had been elected by the Farmers Alliance, which was the most progressive arm of the party. Right. You know, and was looked upon as a, as a very progressive, liberal, you know, thinking governor. But he was so wed to this convict lease system because he had been a supporter of it when he was in the legislature. And so, Kevin, one of the things that we can have our historians solve this mystery, because this is the disputed part of, of the story. Was there any injuries? Were there any deaths as a result of this, yeah, this yeah. on October 28th? What was that? Not during, not, not on October 28th. Okay. Uh, as far as I know, the, uh, the uh, whole Cold Creek Rebellion which uh, locals call it Cold Creek War. Historians refer to it as a rebellion. Uh, there were maybe 35 people who lost their lives during the whole thing. Most of those were the following year. The first year in 1891, these three risings were all bloodless coups. The miners forced the, 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 the guards and the militia to surrender without firing a shot. I think there was uh, uh, the first record of a... Uh, a death in the Cold Creek War happened the following January because after the uh, Halloween fiasco, the governor sent the militia back with the convicts again. He sent the convicts back to Cold Creek again in January, New Year's Day, uh, with three companies of militia from Middle, Middle Tennessee. He didn't trust these Tennessee militia. They surrendered too quickly. He felt like they were too sympathetic to the miners, so he didn't want, want to call them out. So he brought in companies from uh, – Murfreesboro and Chattanooga, and uh, they built a fort on the hill overlooking the Knox Iron Company stockade and brought in Gatlin guns and artillery and set up a, a regular fort there called Fort Anderson, named after the commander uh, at the Knox Iron Company stockade. The other company, the one up in Bryceville that had started the whole mess the previous year, they wouldn't take convicts back. They had almost gone bankrupt being shut down so long, waiting, you know, for this thing to be resolved. They refused to take convicts back. They just settled with their miners and went back to business as usual. So the uh, the only convicts were there at Knox Iron Company again. Um, and with a fort overlooking that, guarding the stockade, the miners pretty well left everything alone. Uh, for the next six months, nothing happened. It was a, a dead time. You know, there were, there were a few incidents uh, some of the soldiers, like soldiers, will they got leave? They went into town. They had drinks. A few of them crashed a miners' dance in the, in Bryceville, and a fist fight ensued when one of the soldiers tried to dance with a miners' girl. The miner whipped the whipped the lieutenant Perry fight, and after the miner left that evening, going home, he was jumped by the militia and lynched. 
Mm-hmm. Fell a young guy named Dick Drummond was lynched from a bridge. They still called the bridge Drummond's Trestle. Uh, a the first loss of life in the in the whole Cold Creek War was a convict that had been posed by a photographer out of Knoxville with some militia holding guns on him and posing for a photograph. And one of the guns went off, oh. and the convict lost his life by accident. Oh, you know, wow. it, it, so you had a few little incidents like that, but nothing really happened till the following summer. Mm-hmm. And then what happened was that the miners down in Tracy City. In, in, in uh, far Grundy County, where the convict lease system had originated, they had been working under the convict system longer than anybody else. They were the ones that were actually were free miners and convicts were working in the same mine. And the free miners got the, felt like they were getting second fiddle because they got to work the hard scenes while the convicts got the, got the preferable scenes. Right. They finally rose up and burned the stockade and freed all their convicts. Hmm. And when that happened, the Cold Creek miners decided, well, let's see if the government can fight two wars at once. And they attacked the fort. And uh, they put Fort Anderson under siege. They weren't able to break the, the to break into the fort too much firepower up there. Hmm. But uh, they put it under siege for about two weeks, during well, which time the governor raised as many militias as he could. And he finally sent 1,500 well, soldiers out to Cold Creek to break the siege. That's where we'll pause and we'll yeah. finish this up. This is just, this is amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. We have one more segment. Yeah. We'll be right back after these messages. We'll have to. Take yourself a home. Get out of sight. There's a dark cloud above me that's blocking out the sun. Burn another hunk of coal. Listen to the engines run. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. Welcome back. Welcome back into the Housing Hour again. Kevin Ray here. I want to jump right back into our final segment because we have, uh, we want to be able to give enough time to to talk with uh, Charles Winfrey, the historian for the Cold Creek Miners Museum. Um, unofficial historian, I guess he said, but he's been in news. He's been in newspaper business for a long time. He understands how telling us what telling a story is all about, and he's told us a very, very compelling and interesting story today. And we absolutely appreciate you coming out and making the time to give us. It's been very informative, and I really appreciate it. These are important things. We always need to remember history. It's so vital, and that's one thing that Mark has taught me over the years is. Um, how how not just important history is, but how interesting it is. So I want you to continue and, and finish. You you were at the point where really we had an, another sort of part of this conflict. Yeah, well, you know the the uh, final final saga of the Coal Creek Rebellion, so called Coal Creek Rebellion, was was uh, the miners besieged the fort uh, with three companies of militia in it on Militia Hill, and the governor, uh, not trusting East Tennessee militia, he. Uh, he hurriedly began to muster in companies from all over West and Middle Tennessee. And uh, as each company would get its troops together, get its uniforms, its arms, and be tra- shipped by train to Knoxville, they would all gather at the University of Tennessee campus. They used that as the mustering ground. So they, they turned the campus into one great big army camp. And uh, eventually he got 1,500 uh, troops gathered with all their artillery and everything. And sent them out, and then they went out by train under command of a fellow named General Samuel Carnes, and they went out by train to Coal Creek. 
as they began to approach the town, they had to stop several times to remove barricades that the miners had put up on the railroad tracks. They uh, uh, finally got to the point where he could begin to distribute out troops, and he would he would uh, leave off artillery at one spot. They'd go a little bit farther and put off artillery on a ridge here and there until he had the town of Cold Creek almost completely ringed with artillery. And then he sent a message to the miners, a simple message. He said, if you don't surrender and put down your arms, I'm going to sell your town. He said, I'll bombard your your, ha- your families, your wives, your children, your homes. He said, well, we're not going to take any more of this. Mm-hmm. And so the miners had no choice. They, they surrendered. They all surrendered their arms and began to be gathered up. Uh, the reign of terror, as, as they like the locals like to call it, the militia lasted about a week as all the miners were gathered up and arrested and put into uh, locked up in the farmer's supply warehouse. Then they ran out of rooms. So they locked them up in local churches. They ran out of room there, locked them up in boxcars on the siding in the August heat. Uh, the general's orders to his men were arrest everybody between 8 and 80 until their innocence could be proven. In other words, the opposite of guilty of innocent until you're proven guilty. It was they're guilty until they're proven innocent. And so everybody was arrested. But eventually, most of them were released. All he was looking for was the leaders. And uh, he was mainly looking to disarm them. So they, they did that. The miners were disarmed. And so, the you know, for a number of months after that, the Army stayed in Cold Creek for the next year because they'd already learned that every time the governor turned his back, the miners would rise again. So he left the army out there for a year. The uh, war correspondents from all over the world that had come in to cover the so-called Cold Creek War, they stayed right there with them. They got so bored, they ended up uh, publishing their own newspaper called the Camp Cards Anti-Bushwhacker. Uh, they called the miners bushwhackers and all that. But eventually, the, the you know, the... Uh, Militia was uh, was taken out when it was obvious there wasn't going to be any more uprisings. Because something else happened. The bean canners down in Nashville, when the next session of the Tennessee legislature came, the people who had a little bit of common sense and a, and a bit of physical uh, 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 solidarity, they began to look at the numbers. They said, well, here's how much we spent, uh, here's how much we made leasing convicts over the last year. Here's how much we spent keeping an army of 1,500 men in the field, clothed, fed, their salaries paid. Uh, I think we're losing the money on this deal. <laughs> so they very wisely refused to renew the lease that the coal companies had with the convicts, and eventually Tennessee completely outlawed it. 1893 was the end of the convict lease system for all practical purposes in Tennessee. Now what that meant to the rest of the country is this. The other southern states saw what happened in Tennessee. They've been watching it very closely. Mm-hmm. They saw the handwriting on the wall. You know, the textile workers down in Georgia were beginning to get restless. Saying those Tennessee miners, they overthrew their convicts. It's time for us to do something. The the uh, sharecroppers down in Mississippi, they're losing their jobs to the to the convicts. They they were getting angry. And people started rumbling here and there. So one by one, all the southern states began to abolish convict leasing. Uh, you know, they replaced that with another system, which was using convicts for public works labor, mm. building roads. Uh, you know, in Tennessee, the state decided, well, we're going to do for all these convicts. We've got to build a prison for them now. You know, we've got so doggone many of them, and they all know how to mine coal. 
Well, the state owns some coal lands over in Morgan County, so let's build a prison over there and put them to work in a coal mine for the state. Brushy Mountain. Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary was built to house the convicts that were yeah. you know, freed up in the Cold Creek War. And now that's a bar. That's a bar, yeah. you know, and that, that, that's part of the uh, driving tier. If you want to take the Cold Creek Brushy Mountain driving tier, you can see both ends of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was built because – and the, and the, the – Convicts were right back to mining coal again, but this time they were not in competition mm-hmm. with free miners. And more importantly, since the state was having to pay for their upkeep and feeding and clothing and wasn't making money off of them anymore, it didn't encourage more and more and more convicts. Yeah. So the, the pressure to just keep increasing the population of criminals in Tennessee was let up some. And, you know, and all the other southern states followed suit. Alabama was the last stubborn holdout, that and they surprising. they waited till 1913 to do away with convict leasing yeah. Alabama. Wow, that doesn't that doesn't surprise me. Now, with that being said, the, so that was a huge part of history, and yeah. it was those East Tennesseans and the people, even the Welch, the Pennsylvania folks, that showed that perseverance and standing up for what you believe in. Even though they didn't win that particular battle, they won the war. They won the war. Exactly. So, Moving to where now we have a coal mining industry, which is a dangerous industry, and we only have a short period of time left. But there was another big moment that we have to talk about before we end. We got about three minutes. <laughs> it was the um, the bomb, the the explosion that killed yeah. two hundred, I think. Yeah, you know, ten years after the Coal Creek War ended in nineteen o two, everything was back to normal in Coal Creek. Everybody was working in the mines. Uh, 200 men went into the freightable mine one morning on a Monday morning. And shortly, just a few minutes after they went in, the mine blew up. Mm. It exploded, a gas explosion. Uh, the way that they mined, that they mined coal in the old days, the pick and shovel days, so to speak, they didn't have electric fans to ventilate the mines. They drilled holes down through the roof of the mines, air shafts, and then they built a fire at the front of the mine. Mm. to create a draft like a chimney and pull air through those air shafts out to the front of the mine, you know, through the, through the uh, being attracted by the, the furnace. Uh, the coal company that uh, particular weekend had decided that they didn't want to pay the guy that minded the fire, and they let him, they sent him home for the weekend, and then the fire went out. And gas built up in the mine over the weekend. Mm. And when the miners went in, the first one that struck a pick against a piece of metal or something caused a spark, the thing blew up. Now, the tragedy of, Co- of Freighterville was not all those men were killed instantly. A mm. uh, number of them were already in their individual little rooms that they were assigned to to mine coal and were trapped in there and were able to barricade themselves in and, you know, and survived the initial explosion. But they were trapped, and all the air was taken out of the mine by the explosion. It was replaced with carbon monoxide, poisonous. Uh. Uh, what the miners called black damp, mm. and uh, there was no way for them to get out. And so the families sat out there waiting in vain for some word that maybe their, their loved ones survived, and the rescue efforts were nothing more than recovery efforts. There was mm. never a, a prayer of getting them out because at that time there were no self-contained, you know, oxygen rigs. They hadn't been right. created yet, right. and, uh, and uh, so there was nothing they could do. Uh, the the sacrifice of those miners led to uh, a number of changes, though. The, the U.S. federal government, because of Freighterville, it was the worst mine disaster in American history when it happened. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Two years later, a worse one happened in West Virginia. Same kind of situation. Those two disasters encouraged the federal government to create the U.S. Bureau of Mines and make mine safety one of their most important elements. They found that a German over in Europe had invented a, a chemical contraption that would create oxygen by chemical reaction, and they uh, they bought a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. They began to train men on how to use those to go in and rescue miners. Yeah. So as a result of that, they sacrificed their lives, but ultimately between that and the West Virginia explosion, yeah. they helped save lives. Yeah, 1911, so. Cross Mountain Mine blew up in Bryceville for the first time ever. Mm. Men were brought out of that mine alive because of the the uh, new equipment that they had in the training. Wow. So it, it, Charles, it, this has been an incredible hour. On behalf of Mark and the show, uh, thank you for what you're doing because carrying this story is so vital, and I'm glad we have it documented and recorded amongst many other sources. If I may, if I may have one couple of seconds for a little publicity, we have a coal miners celebration. The first Saturday of November out in Coal Creek. The we whole will have day. all of this information on thehousinghour.com. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much. That's the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray for today. Join Kevin and his guests each week at this time to keep up with the why and why not you need to know. So come here to find out. Also, check us out at thehousinghour.com. This show is presented by Mortgage Investors Group.